Hello and welcome to another Club Sports 10 Bit More podcast. In this edition, I'm delighted to introduce Steve Berg. Steve is a coach with many years' experience as both an athlete and coach within cycling and paracycling. So again, with no further ado, I really want to go through some reflections on Steve's career and some of the things that have guided his development. So welcome, Steve. I just want to go through again our 10 quickfire questions. Quickfire in the sense that there's only 10, but take your time in answering those. The first one I want is, can you describe your childhood sports experiences? What sports were you involved with? Um, as a child, I grew up in Belfast in Ireland, so I didn't have organized sports, but it was every day, hours of soccer, kicking the ball around the street. Um, much like road hockey is here in Canada, in Ireland at the time, soccer on the street was what every kid played. And at five o'clock, when your parents would come home, your dads would join in, and the games would get really serious when the dads would run the street. And uh, that's what, what I got my first. And then I remember the 76 Olympics were on, and my dad actually did like a mini Olympics for the neighborhood. He set up a long jump in our yard and a high jump, and we had running races. And all those fun activities were really instrumental in my youth. It wasn't organized. It wasn't like paid for service programs that you have now for all our youth, but it was more just community stuff. And my dad was a cyclist and a racer, so every weekend we'd be out at bike tracks, at races, watching him and his teammates duke it out on the highway. And then, you know, if there was a nice afternoon after his races, we'd all bring our bikes and go ride the course while it was closed or while it was, you know, set up for the race. So, so much of that. And then when I moved back to Canada when I was 10, 11, oddly enough, I went into figure skating because I came through. In Ireland, I did Irish dancing, which every kid in Ireland does. So I kind of had a background in Irish dancing. And my parents thought, well, maybe figure skating would be good. Learned how to skate. That was sort of the method to their madness was to get me on skates, not in hockey, but in skating. And so I did that for a couple of years. And then slowly but surely... I uh, started cross-country running with school programs, after-school clubs and stuff like that, and then volleyball. Volleyball was my primary sport through high school and cycling. They were both complementary through winter and summer sports. And so that's where I really found a love for sport and activity. And some of my coaches in volleyball were really profoundly impacted my career. Um, my first volleyball coach was a young teacher that came out of Red Deer College and just loved volleyball, and she taught me to love the game and have fun at it and then my next coach in high school was a much more serious more structured coach but by that point I was ready for the seriousness and the, and the dedication and the commitment to it and so I pursued volleyball at a high level and even tried out for university and college games but teams but those that turned into more coaching so I actually then started coaching volleyball so it was a bit so, of a, a mixed bag as a child growing up I did everything and anything a lot of unorganized free play right through to more organized competitive structural sports it's an interesting one. A few um, other of the other guests have said they've come through the same varied, varied background. And yeah. I, I love how you just described how street soccer, then a coach who taught you to love the sport, then a coach who taught you really how to focus and compete within the sport. Yeah. And it's a progressive pathway. Exactly. And, and I kind of duplicated that my own, in my own years as a coach. In the youth kids and the programs I taught and coached, I always thought, focused on fun camaraderie team team responsibility team relationships because i know of 20 kids in a program you might be very lucky if you have one superstar one athlete that goes all the way to say an olympic team or a professional cycling career team or a yeah. trade team so the rest of the other kids the other kids the other 19 people in that program deserve your attention and and, and time and can benefit from that in other ways in career yeah. management or life skills and stress management like health and wellness, so many other benefits from sport. And I remember 
having an experience with another coach early on who was of the opposite philosophy. Start with 20, at the end of the year, there'd be two, but those two would be on the national team. And I really had a hard time with that. Yeah. Like it really, it really, it really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I didn't respect that style of burnout for success. And I just Absolutely. made it, took it upon myself to create a program with a different philosophy and it was, it proved very successful. Okay. So really then looking back on, on your career and, and your sporting endeavors, who was the greatest influence on you as an athlete or as a coach? Who do you think had that biggest impact? One person? And it's, it's a tough question. Cause I think I would say my dad, really, my dad was the biggest influence in both. You, I would honestly say, honestly say in both good and bad, because that father son relationship, with coach, <laughs> it was brutal. There was days when I hated him as my coach. And then there was days when I was so, you know, proud to have him as my coach. So there was definitely that, that two-sided coin, right? So my dad was definitely a big influence. And he was more of a, of a serious coach, like work, work, work. But then he would reward you with these really unique, really fun, you know, days off where you do something completely different. You know, I remember when we went to Canada Games when I was 18. And it was Canada Games, Team Yukon, first cycling team. And uh, after the first race, he took us to the water slides, the water park. Like, and that was like, a, that was not, nobody else did that. No, no other coach in the system would have done that because it was a hot, sunny day in Saskatchewan. You know, people would have thought that would be too much, but we had such a good time. And I know for a fact, all my teammates from that trip appreciated that, that downtime and that fun time. It made us work harder the next day. It's an so interesting it It's an interesting dilemma when you've been coached by your parents or as a parent myself now. I became, I became a coach before I become a parent and I often liken this to many new coaches coming in who generally the flow is we become parents and then coaches and we, but I was yeah. obviously, and I recognize looking back how I pushed my children maybe too much. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'm, it's, I'm walking that fine line now. I've got three kids and, and ironically they all love cycling and I'm not coaching them. I honestly do not coach. Yeah. If they ask questions or want information, I'll do it. But I think we just ride so much as a family and they just duplicate and copy, right? We, we do so yeah. much together and they all have their own specialist, special interests in their own sort of directions they want to go. But man, it's really rewarding to see my kids out riding stuff that, you know, Black Diamond Trails in Canmore that my, you know, the former kids that I used to coach would be riding, you know, later in their years as, as athletes when they're a little more mature. So you also yeah. doing it for the fun and the love of it before the competition element comes in. Yeah, exactly. And if they want to race, great. If they don't, well, that's okay. They'll be active, yeah. healthy young people for their majority of their life, I'm sure. Excellent. Yeah. Um, what do you feel is more important to attaining success in sport? Is it graft or luck? Now, obviously, at the higher end and more competitive end, a lot of people will lean on the essence of luck. What do you think is the, the ingredients? Well, I think you're, you need both. You need to be able to work hard and take your, your bumps and bruises and every once in a while you get lucky too, right? Like I've seen those athletes that have really, really talented athletes that have everything in, given to them. Like their parents have the means to provide everything and they're talented, but they, it comes easy for them and they, they come and go. Like I've seen kids that could have gone on to great careers, but they have other things in their lives that are also important to them. So they pursue that instead. And yet I've seen other kids that had, had, you know, weren't given everything, had to work for every equipment, every bike, every shoe set of shoes or helmet they ever wanted and really, really appreciated everything they got 
and those guys make it and they really stick to it. And they sometimes can go further and, and farther in the system. You know, so I think, but I mean, God-given talent or talent itself, you can only do so much with that. You have to have the ability to work hard. And I've yeah. seen, I've probably seen more talented, genuinely talented athletes not succeed and pursue the, their ultimate goals, which really is it their goal or our goal as the coach. Yeah. Um, and I've seen other ones that just had the real stick to and hard ethic, hard work ethic. And the dream, the dream. If you have a kid that can dream and they're not so talented, I would say that is, in my mind, a more, you know, workable, you know, clay mold model than a kid with talent and six and all of the equipment and all of the, the the support he needs or she needs. Absolutely, it leads into one of my later questions. What I'll bring forward. Sure. When we look when we look at sport, we see lots of those champions. Exactly what you're describing there who had the fight. So Muhammad Ali, he had an issue. His fight was racism. You know, you can yeah. even look in cycling with Lance Armstrong, who was always fighting for his mom and his social background. Um, obviously got a bit waylaid with the EPO, which is, was pro- quite prevalent in cycling. But yeah. What would you describe then in your, for you, is, was your fight to keep you going in sport and coaching? What is the one drive, the fight that you... You know, you mentioned moms and parents, and, and mid-career for me, in my early 20s, when my mom was diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. And I remember those few years after that, I was a beast on the bike because I just wanted to take as much pain and frustration and, and anguish my mom was going through in cancer treatment, I wanted to duplicate on the bike. Yeah. And so I was really hard on myself. And it, was, it also was in line with when I was 21, I also had a, my own personal health setback. I had a heart infection that laid me up for a year. So yeah. coming back after that, I wanted to prove to everybody that I wasn't down and I wasn't out and that I wasn't finished. Um, so I really, those two things were catalysts for me. And I, would I have gone on professionally to a high level in the sport? Probably not. I mean, I think I stumbled into coaching and made that transition in my mid twenties when most male elite athletes are really focused and still pushing. Cause at 23 and I was diagnosed with a, with another heart defect that was lifelong. And I realized it was like a Ferrari running on six cylinders when there's supposed to be eight. Like I had a good capacity and a good engine, but it wasn't perfect. It wasn't optimal. So then I thought, well, this coaching thing looks like it might go somewhere. And it just totally stumbled into it by accident. I thought I would do coaching for a couple of years, look good on a resume, maybe go on into do education or something else. And lo and behold, it was a 25 year career. We all sort of fall into coaching and once we get in there, that, that competitive edge, you know, and again, talking for, you know, I had my own battles with cancer and I came for, and I know I actually won an Ironman race with cancer still in me and it was that drive that I, I couldn't let it win. It wasn't going to beat me. I was, yeah. I just raced every race as if, what if this is my last one? And it was, it was yeah. a great driver and thankfully, obviously, I've come through touch wood and all good now. So Excellent. Um, Very good. So in terms of your coaching focus, and again, I understand as we get more and more up the uh, developmental pathway, and I think you've alluded to it, what would you describe as your, your perspective? Is it outcome or development, or is it a mixture of both again? It was after my, my tenure with the national team and doing the elite, the Paralympic Games and that level of, of sport, I, then I came back to the development and that's where I really found my, my footing because at the high performance side of things, I could do it, but I didn't love it. 
like I was in the environment of the games where win at all costs kind of philosophy, despite not all costs really, but win, win, win is the driving factor. And the success measures and all of those kind of components, that wasn't really my forte. But when I came back into grassroots development, I really then realized, because I'd been through the whole spectrum. I started out with development and followed my athletes up the system right through the games. Yeah. And then those athletes continued on and had success. And I then went back to development and started from scratch again. And that's when I really, really engaged and found that was what I preferred. That was my special specialization. And that was around the same time that CAC and Coaching Association of Canada was changing their levels, their grade one, level one, two, three to the, the um, competency-based learning system. And it was a, a big change from being that, you know, the old driver where you had to be level one was development, level two was provincial, level three was provincial slash national, and level four was international. And that kind of, that was like a, a feeding system for coaches, but it, not all coaches want to be a level four coach or work yeah. internationally. So were you supposed to just stay level two and that's it? So the new system allowed you to become a professional coach and continue hi higher education and higher learning and professional development and still focus on that specialized area that you have identified as your niche. So that's where the last 10, 15 years of my coaching, I would bring athletes up to the national team level and then pass awesome. them on quite, yeah. quite happily. And it, when the athletes realized that my philosophy was I have a toolbox and my toolbox is different for every athlete, just like it is, it's personalized and it's trained and it's customized. But once my tools are diminished and I have no more tools to give that athlete, it's time to transition that athlete into another coach. And yeah. sometimes that happens in two or three years. Sometimes it happens in five or six years. Depends on the, the nature of that person. When they come in at what point in their life, were they really young? Were they mature? Were they an adult? All those factors are part of that. And what was their prior sport history? Some athletes I'd work with for a year, maybe two, and transition them very quickly to another coach. Other athletes, if they were 12 or 13 when they came in, I'd work with them for six or seven years until they were breaking through to the national team, and then they would transition to another coach. I love it. It's an interesting element that you hit on for coaching, because I know when I started coaching football back home in England, everyone aspired to climb a ladder to the top of the ladder, and yeah. it was encouraged within the sport. But now, if you look at the English game back home and a lot of sports, they're recognizing specialists at different ages groups and they're recognizing yeah. a really good coach at a U6 age could be as good as a, a professional coach. They have yeah. the same basic group. So really the message is for coaches, find your niche. Yeah, and I think, and thank goodness that happened in that time because I probably wouldn't have stayed in coaching if I was expected to, you know, always aspire to be a level four or higher level coach, yeah. you know, and, and having that ability to come back into the sport and, be supported and encouraged and, and develop that next wave of athletes in the next generation. I mean, I've been very successful and very proud to say that I've had athletes on every Paralympic team since Athens that I, I had an influence over and, and every Olympic team since Beijing, Beijing 2008, there was a young athletes that came through as 12, 13 year olds that were transitioning into elite national team, able-bodied Olympic teams, you know, for Beijing, London and Rio. So, you know, and it's a very small group, but at the same time, I know those athletes appreciated what influence I did have on them in those few years I worked with them. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on, in terms of mental skills and sports psychology, what, what, what are the main tools that you might use with your athletes in your general coaching? So again, it's like the development phase. Like we don't start, you know, anaerobic training right off the bat. You have to build up to every component of your 
key performance factors. And again, you can take the same approach to sports psychology. Early on, it's a very rudimentary, very simple discussions, just talking about goals, life goals, dream goals, short-term goals, long-term goals, multi-season goals, and giving them strategies to identify and, and create goals. Because if they're really young kids, they don't understand what goals are. And maybe they all want to be an Olympian or a professional cyclist, but that's the end goal. That's the 10-year goal or 20-year yeah. goal. But we, when you break it down into smaller, consumable, more measurable goals in between, you know, it's making the provincial team, it's making the Canada Games team, it's those other small benchmarks along the way that they have to identify. And the sooner you can identify those, those that pathway, then those athletes will be able to, to look ahead, look in the, the groups of athletes that are ahead of them in the system, whether it's provincially or nationally, and see, oh, that's where I'll be in four or five years, the next the generation of kids ahead of them, the cohort above them. And they can yeah. track and make those connections and relationships and start to duplicate that. If there's nobody in the system that they can look up to, then it's really hard to create goals that are achievable, measurable, that, that they can connect with, right? If you're looking outside of your province to other provinces or other programs, or other teams, and I'm sure it's similar in soccer, you can't, it's nice to have that connection locally. If you can say to a 14-year-old, here's an 18-year-old kid that was where you were four years ago, and he's now on the junior national team. You just need to tr track what he's done or she's done and maybe you'll have that same level of success. And I think in, in, when they're really young, Keenan and the parents, and obviously parents are part of that goal setting too, because if parents don't understand the kid's goals and what it's gonna take, then there's a disconnect. So you have to have parents buy in too. And sometimes parents are not great for goal setting. They want things that the kids aren't aware of or aren't even um, capable of yet. And other times they're the right fit because that, then they know, okay, so in three years we need to have a new bike or a new equipment or maybe make, it, make more investment in training camps or a bigger investment in family, it changes up the family vacations. Like I had serious yeah. discussions at certain points with families where, you know, the next three or four years, your vacations are going to be going to bike races. And they'd be like, oh, okay, so I guess we're not gonna go to Florida for Christmas with grandparents next year. Like they would they'd actually plan that out with the family so they'd know that come June, July of the next two or three years, they need to be available for this event. You know, in June 23rd, every year is junior nationals or whatever it was. So they would create that awareness so they wouldn't be planning ahead and doing other things that families would like to do. So as a cycling coach, did you actively engage the parents then? Because obviously people look at cycling as an individual sport from the outside and it's all about the athlete. Did, you know, and in soccer, one of the biggest burdens at times coaches mention is the influence of parents on the team and the, the yeah. players. How was this, the parent engagement for cycling? I figured out early on you had if you could get um, the right connection with parents, I would find out right off the bat whether the child, the athlete, wanted their parents around. Sometimes the parents would be overbear overbearing too much stimulation for the kid or too much attention to their own kid. So I would, it was based on the kid's relationship with their parents. And I'd figure out very quickly, is your dad or mom welcome to come on rides? And they'd be like, no, I don't want my dad. And I'd, be, I'd very politely tell the dad, sorry, we don't need a volunteer today. We don't need your volunteer. And then there'd be other dads, because you couldn't lead a ride, say, with 20 kids without a support system with yeah. two or three volunteer parents. Because I tried early on, and there was too much risk. Because there's yeah. always a kid that, gets, that needs some extra support or extra, extra help. And some parents actually became a risk to me. I had a parent crash and break ribs and dislocate a shoulder, shoulder one time. And that's like, well, that's not the point of you coming along. I don't want to have an emergency response Absolutely. to a parent that causes the program to derail. So it was, and I had very fortunate, great parents and great families and all the programs I ever worked with. And the parents figured out very quickly 
their role and how they fit into the system and that they weren't there to help their own kids but to help everybody. And eventually those parents that were maybe not invited the first year of riding, they would back off and eventually they would be invited in and they would figure out that their place was, you know, here or there. Or maybe it wasn't on rides, but at the training camp, they could be a driver for a, a van for during the week and just offer that kind of support. But for sure, I was I was never afraid to to ask parents to get involved and help out. And also, a part of my relationship with parents was the good and the bad of the of the job of the athlete I worked with because we always see the best side of them, right? As coaches, we're very fortunate we get to see them in the in their best light, doing something they love, something yeah. that they're motivated to be at, and they might sometimes prefer to be at sport and give up things at school but it, school is an important part of their development so I would always be aware of kids in school and how their academics were doing how they were getting along with their teachers those kind of things and other challenges that teenage children have teenage young adults have so there was quite a few times where parents would be like privately message me or text me or come and have a co coffee outside of regular hours to discuss you know issues at home and I wouldn't make a big deal of, you know, pointing out the issues and, you know, but I would find a way to blend in lessons that would address those concerns in a general sense. So that if I knew one kid was having problems with school, maybe the whole network are having similar challenges. So it was really well received. Parents loved the fact that they could come to me and bring those things to me privately. And I wouldn't, you know, embarrass the mm -hmm. children with it or the, 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 add their, the, the athlete with it. But we would address it in, in the season over the course of the training program. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's nice to hear because, again, I don't know any coaching courses that really deal with how to engage with parents and then establishing that role clarity of what is expected of a parent, what is expected from us as coaches, and then yeah. from the children. Normally, we just go and say, and again, this was a, one of my biggest failings as a young coach is I just work with a team. And I said, yeah. I don't want to be engaged with the parents. And that actually cost me my most successful team. We were, we were about to win three trophies in a season. Um, and the team imploded because I didn't engage the parents properly. And I, I feel that's something that we, we certainly don't encourage or teach our, co uh, our yeah. coaches in their development. And I think it was all, again, I had a, a coach early on in my career that says, don't, get, don't, don't befriend the parents. And I, I mean, he came from a different sport, a very high performance elite sport where parents can be very overbearing. And I was, again, going to like, well, I kind of tried that for the first couple of years, but I found it wasn't my style. And again, when you're a young coach, you kind of emulate coaches you look up to, but then you find what works for you and you start to create your own philosophies and your own strategies and systems. So I was very lucky to have good coaches that I mentor coaches that I worked with. I was able to take the, the, the best parts of their personal styles and then modify it to make it fit with my personal style. Yeah. You know, like, and I think there was definitely some parents that, I'm still friends with and I'm really close, you know, relationships with and, and would still consider them good friends. And the, and the athletes are mature young adults now and have families of their own. And, you know, it's nice to see that development and that, that, that history and that process throughout the last 20 years of coaching. And there's families that, you know, I wouldn't even remember, you know, cause it just yeah. worked one or two years in the system or something and wasn't as influential connection. Yeah. But, um, I just like that because, again, you said there, and it's a mistake of many junior coaches, is we go through our education and coach ed coaching, and no one mentions that. And so we go in and just see the athletes. And yeah. it took me that, that real culture shock where I lost a team to really realize that, you know, you've got to engage the parents. They are part yeah. of that. And it's that triangulation, whether it's 
a coach, a, a sports medicine, sports psychology, parents. Yeah. It's so much that makes the athlete tick. And we've got to embrace that. And again, the, like the other discussion points, there was a time where, you know, when the kids would mature and the parents would, their role would dissolve or fade away as they're maturing into individual, where they get their driver's licenses and don't require mom and dads to drive them to training, to races, those kind of things. And you can see that some parents missed those, that connection, that support. They'd be like, oh, that's now my role's changed, right? Because the kid yeah. has grown up into the system. So, yeah. you know, I've, I've, I've been able to create the, those connections with parents for sure. And when I did start out, I was, again, much younger than the parents, you yeah. know, because they, they were a generation ahead of me. You know, and then as I matured as a coach, then those parents became peers of mine and similar age of mine. And, and now if I was to start coaching, I'm sure I'd be older than some of the parents of the kids I'd be coaching. Yeah. So it's kind of the transition in my own development, which is hard to believe. But it, it's pretty interesting to think that, you know, when I started out, the parents that I was coaching their kids, they were 10, 15 years older than me. Right. Yeah, and now, absolutely. Then there was a while where we were the same age and we had similar interests and we could get along really well. And now there's times where I would be the much more mature, older person in the group. So. <laughs> we can't chase time, you know, it's, it, it ticks yeah. on. Um, next question is what one experience in your development do you feel gave you the greatest learning curve for your coaching? Was there one, one standout experience? Well, I do, it's not directly related to coaching. It was again, it was a, a side job I did late in my university years. I took two years off university to help my mom with her cancer treatment. Again, she, her early years of my coaching, when she, it was probably about eight, nine years later, she was then diagnosed with like a liver cancer, very serious cancer that I took two years off from school. And so the first six or eight months, I didn't work. I just nursed my mom every day it was through the chemo and the radiation and all that stuff and then eventually I got to a point where her health had returned to a fairly good place and I was looking for work so I got a, a ended up as a teacher's assistant in a high school for a student that was visually impaired and that's that's how I stumbled into paracycling a Paralympic sport this two-year gig that I ended up at a high school in Whitehorse I was first first year was part-time the second year was full-time um and at the same time, I was taking my coaching courses, the old level one, level two cycling. And so through the first year of the, the job with the school, I convinced the Department of Education to buy a tandem to help his physical education program. Because in phys ed, we would go to gym when it was scheduled, but it was more personal training. I would take him to the gym, we'd do weights, we would go for a run, we would go for a snowshoe, whatever the, the kind of cross training we could think of, because the team sports weren't very adequate or adaptable to him. Yeah. So the, the department got us a tandem. We started riding every day and he was enjoying it and liked it a lot. And at the same time I was taking my coaching levels. And one of the discussions during the coaching course was what are your goals? And I thought, well, this is a fun thing. I've been riding with this kid that was visually impaired. I had never even heard of the Paralympics before. And this is in the summer of 97. So 1996 had just happened in Atlanta. Cycling Canada had just had their first integrated team where it was a full, like a Cycling Canada mission versus the Canadian Paralympic Committee mission. And the coaches were professional cycling coaches, and it was a, you know, big deal. And the coach facilitator that was at the course took my name and number and basically gave it to Cycling Canada. He said, this kid in the Yukon wants to, take, to coach cyclists that are visually impaired. So, and somebody in Cycling Canada recognized my name because I was on the database of athletes from Calgary at the training center. So, lo and behold, when I came back to school a year later, there was a, 
I walked into the office to sign up as an athlete to return to training. And they said, and Kurt Innes was the head coach at the cycling center at the time. And uh, he said, nope, we don't want you to be an athlete. We want you as a coach. And I was like, what? And I had no, I totally forgotten about this conversation I had with the learning facilitator the course the year before who, where I'd said, I want to do this. And at this point I was just going to finish my degree. Yeah. And then I was actually going to, my plan was to finish my kines and then do a teacher's education d- diploma and specialize in blind education. I really enjoyed working with the visually impaired. I was already a grade one braille instructor and I had a bit of a momentum in that, in that field. And so, but this opportunity came along to coach. And I said, okay, well, let me see. It was all volunteer. There was no money in it. So I said, okay, I'll give it some thought. And I, I put some pen to paper and some ideas down and connected some, with some people. And within three months, I had one visually impaired athlete in the system. And at first, I was thinking blind only. I didn't realize Paralympics yeah. had all the different categories that they have. So this young girl joined the program. Her name was Zadie. And we started working together. We, uh, a gentleman from Cochrane heard about the program and donated a tandem bike to us. So we were able to ride. And within that first year, Zadie went to her, the first national championships were in Langley, BC. And I met the national team coaches and the Cycling Canada people. And that was basically 98, 99. The fall of 1999, I was the assistant coach to the Southern Cross Games in Australia, which was the warm up for the games in Sydney in 2000. So that was a big deal. That was my first sort of national team involvement. And then I was assistant coach in Sydney at the Paralympics. So my career just launched. Like it was like a rocket ship. I couldn't believe it. I went from November 1998 was my first cycling team, cycling program session yeah. with Zadie. And November 99, I was on a plane going to Australia. And November 2000, I was on a plane coming home from Australia after the Games. So you and signed up as an athlete and you end up coaching a national team in Australia. Yeah, pretty much <laughs> within a year of each other. Yeah. And that was the coach I worked with. I was assistant coach to Vincent Jordan, who was a wonderful coach. I really learned a lot from Vincent. He was Quebec-based, um, French-Canadian. Bilingual was very good technical expert in, in the sport of cycling is now working internationally somewhere in Europe. I think he works for the IOC, the Olympic committee. So I had a great so, mentor and coach in, in, in this. So in a sense, someone saw something in you to encourage you to take that, those next steps. Yeah. And for sure, the other person I would have to give credit for is Pierre Rutsibo, the former director, executive director, CEO for Cycling Canada. He was a big mentor for me. He was Kurt, uh, not Kurt. He was uh, Steve Bowers' coach. I think back in the eighties and early Olympic yeah. years of, of that generation. Very, and he's still coaching now. He's an incredible coach. He's got athletes that are a pro tour rate riders in Europe, and he's one of the most you know technically proficient cycling experts in Canada for high performance road cycling. So those few people really helped me get my start. You know. Yeah. Okay, so so today you're working with uh, Brian Spall. Yeah. What is your personal coaching goals for the future in terms of your current role or coaching? Well, and that's where my transition from coaching cycling to being a director of domestic development for Canadian Blind Sports has changed. I'm not, I'm not, not actively coaching. I'm yeah. kind of dabbling in it. I've got a few leads and a few connections with some visually impaired and some Paralympic athletes that are looking for support. And again, it's just getting them started. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing a little bit of that. There's, there's a bit of, I have a need and, a, and I'm hungry for coaching again, but I know it's not a realistic, I wouldn't go back to coaching because the, the security is with the family is just not there. Like yeah. that was the biggest reason for leaving coaching was the, the constant stress of not having a contract year after year and always, you know, you know, trying to align funding partners and, all of the essentials that you need to have a program. 
Um, so I've really fallen into, and part of my role is, is coach education. So I'm now coaching coaches and teaching coaches and doing that. So it's a nice evolution as a coach for me to yeah. be able to, and it's not too far away from what I did to begin with because visually impaired athletes were part of my day-to-day training environment as a cycling coach. Now goalball is a sport and I don't know the sport technically, or I'm not a sport expert for goalball, but I know all of the other stuff around athletes that are visually impaired, how to guide, how to facilitate, how to plan training camps, those components I'm very comfortable with. And I think that's having a positive impact on the programs and the teams. So the, the personal goal is to continue your role and see the development of blind sport. Certainly yeah. better than that. Yeah, and to bring in more coaches because our sport is very small and there's the limited number of coaches in the system. But I think it's like the chicken and the egg thing. Is it, do athletes come before coaches or do coaches come before athletes? Yeah. And I'm kind of of the philosophy right now. If we had more coaches in the system across the country, then those coaches would attract more athletes and those athletes would then attract, you know, higher level of performance and the system would evolve and grow into a, a overall healthier, better place. Yeah. It's a bit like field of dreams. You know, you build the field, the, the yeah. players come. And again, exactly. I know, I know looking in my role um, within soccer, we're looking at inclusion and accessibility and the coach development model for coaching disabled athletes is a key model for me working with coaches in competitive regulation soccer. The, the qualities yeah. to coach those athletes would make any coach in any sport a better coach in terms of communication and engaging those yeah. athletes. Um, that's one thing that I've learned was a lot of time people would ask, well, what would I do for specialized training to become a Paralympic coach? And I was like, well, I was a coach first and I adapted my knowledge and expertise to fit the needs of the athletes I worked with. Yeah. And I, I learned through trial and error. And I, I never ever professed to be an expert in any one thing. I learned from the athletes, the athletes and I would sit down and say, what can you do? Like, what do you think your limitations are and how do we figure it? And I, one of the things I really excelled at and loved was the adaptations to make athletes adaptable to their bikes or the bikes adaptable to them. And that's where I became, you know, a really well known for f- fixing bikes to make it work so that anybody can ride a bike. And so thanks to my dad and his, his ability to fix anything like he was a very mechanical kind of guy that's what i learned you know to make bikes work and adapt them to the athlete's needs and uh this was a big part of my success because if you have you had kids that are growing up with doctors physical therapists teachers tell them they can't do that they can't ride a bike you're just not safe yet i come along and in six months get them riding a bike and prove everybody wrong it's a pretty big deal and then five years later that kid's in the paralympic games it was that's a pretty huge you know, step to take. Again, I know that's one of the things that I really enjoy about coaching with an adaptive soccer or sport. And I think looking at generic coaches coming in who don't have that training, they, they always ask, what can they, what can't they do? But they never actually yeah. ask the athlete. And, you know, I, I keep saying it, that's your point of contact. Go to the athlete and ask them. Yeah. Don't go to an advocate or parent. Just say, can yeah. you do this? And, and let's, let's go play without that fear, but there's all, I feel a lot of coaches always hold back for fear of breaking something. And these, these guys are stronger than most of us. So they are, they're used to falling down. And that's, that's, I hate to say it that way, but these kids that I worked with were so tough. And if you, if you coddled them, they didn't like it. There was some that needed a bit more general love and assistance kind of a thing, but to get the mode, but for the most part, man, those guys are tough. And I remember seeing kids do things that, their own peers believe. And once you give them that, once you, they see that you actually 
believe that they're capable of doing something that other people yeah. didn't think they could, then you, you've got a great relationship and potential there. Yeah. I mean, I would, I, I remember challenging some of the textbook stuff that even learned in university courses on adaptive physical education and some of the stuff that was, you know, philosophies and principles designed in the fifties and sixties that aren't current anymore. And that's not a fit then, but now it's, you know, these young guys can strength train, they can work hard, they can go anaerobic, they can do all that. It's just what you do between efforts and between recovery sessions and how you support them in that end of the training versus stopping them from doing it at all. You know? I think again, you know, it's like any athlete, if you're working with any sports team, some are more able to push themselves anaerobically than others. So again, yeah. it's, it's recognizing individuals as athletes and that's something that I feel adapted coaching really enables you to focus on where you do yeah. see each individual athlete as that individual. Um, yeah. and go on. The one thing that I, I really, getting back to the parents was, I remember a couple of years in, I remember having a, a, at a training camp, you know, one of the quiet nights having some, you know, after hours refreshments with a couple of parents and asking them, honestly, what do you think should the program continue in its form where the young Paralympians are fully integrated into the young able-bodied program. And because it was days where the training might not have been as dynamic or as challenging for some of the able-bodied youth because it was a young boy with a, with cerebral palsy there. When, but when you actually challenged, ask the parents for their feedback, they said, that's keep them in, keep them integrated. Our kid comes home from training and talk about the challenges they were a part of today in training, extra training program. And they always are proud to say their teammate was, physically impaired or the things that that child or that athlete had done with them side by side. And it changed the, that family's dynamic, right? So that, that student or that athlete would then go to school and see a, a peer at school with cerebral palsy or who somebody that might've been visually impaired or somebody that was in a wheelchair and have a different opinion of that person and be able to befriend that person in school and make it that connection. And at first I thought, well, maybe there's, maybe there's a time to have a bit of overlap and a bit of combined training and others where you pull them apart. And the parents are like, no, our child, our, the training they're getting is adequate. They're on track for what their goals are. And until we need more and there's a, a definite deficit from training integrated, there's never going to be a problem. And that was, became the universal sort of accepted role in the program because people realized that, sure, the train, and when you got to training, the ride to and from the venue might have been a bit modified to meet the needs of everybody. But once you got to the velodrome or got to the training session, then everybody could do their specific training at their own intensity without any adaptation to or change to the program at all. I think it's something we need to encourage in more and more in sport. And I've just managed to link one young lad who's visually impaired and has cerebral palsy. And I'm, I'm actually got him going to a soccer session this week with a, a younger Excellent. age group just to see how he gets on. And yeah. again, I think the lesson is going to be more important. I know in back home in England years ago, I used to work with a, a professional club and, we take children from a mainstream school as such to the special school and just buddy the children in the, in the special school. And it was fantastic for those kids to yeah. engage and, and see the impact that they could have on others. Um, yeah. one, one final question. If you had a magic wand, what one, and especially coming through COVID, sport has gone through, is going through such a turmoil at the moment. You know, no spectators at professional sport. It's, it'll be interesting yeah. to see what the Tour de France does in a couple of weeks. Um, how are they going to manage that? But if you had a magic wand, what would you change about the current sporting world? Oh, I would, I honestly have a really, really hard time with the professionals and the salaries they're making. 
Like that is absurd. Yeah. I don't think anybody on this planet is worth tens of millions of dollars and hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think the system needs to be flipped on its head that if for every professional athlete that is that kind of funding behind them, they should then sponsor a hundred or a thousand, whatever it is that they can afford to do a bunch of amateur athletes. Because how much wealth do you need? Like it's the professional yeah. sport is gone so big in it. I remember part of the sport history, you know, the Olympic history, the downfall of the ancient Olympic games was the, the money, the cost, the, the driving like that. That was the downfall of the games 2,000 years ago, and it's going to be the downfall of our current games. It's, it's so interesting when, when you look at the, you know, reading from some of the soccer players, and probably the same, I didn't realize baseball players are paid so much as well, but some of the yeah. soccer players I actually gave back to uh, nurses and stuff at the moment during COVID. Yeah. If they can afford to do that now, why couldn't they afford to do it exactly. forever, you know? Why, why yeah. can we not give more back? I know... Again, my team is Leeds and the manager there has built an academy at the first club he was at. And yeah. that, that academy produced Lionel Messi. So again, it's, it's why, why, can, why do players chase that money so badly? Um, why can they not use yeah. that to betterment of the sport? And I think they, they deserve a good salary. I'm not saying they don't. I just that some mm. of the sports and some of the professional sports around the world have different rates of, of remuneration. And they're yeah. still considered professional and they still have a good living and have a good life and they're still considered a celebrity in their country and they can still have that, that, that level of respect. But they don't, like, the amount of money that this top players and signing they're getting, is, is, it yeah. just blows your mind. And then again, that trickles down to the, the annual, like your family pass. Like who can afford a, a season pass anymore yeah. to bring a family to a hockey games or season or whatever? Like there's very few people are, are I think, that level and the facilities and the infrastructure everything's then hugely expensive and i mean they, they whenever the public dollars are funding the building of these uh, these structures and these facilities yet the private entities that make the hundreds of millions of dollars through the season there's, there's a disconnect there that doesn't i don't agree with that it's again how do you mandate that and that would be the challenge yeah. i agree you know when when we're paying for a facility that we may never go to uh, and an athlete playing in that facility is living in 10 houses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know. It's a, it's a give and take. And for sure, there's got to be a, a better system out there that you could model and work towards, you know. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think hopefully post-COVID, you know, I think you and I have spoken about this, just the, the change. Like life was so hectic before COVID and there's so much, so many things pulling me away from my family personally for, for other obligations and other commitments. But now that I've got a new sort of a, a respect for family and where I've been and what my goals are, I'm not so motivated to go back to that craziness where you're traveling so much and always on the road. And, you know, there's other things that are pulling you away versus just getting on your bike and go for a ride or spending an afternoon with your kids, you know, at the water park. So there's definitely, I'm, I don't expect to go back to the same level of chaos and, and, uh, distraction that I had pre-COVID. Yeah, I think that is going to be the major new norm that we will see. You know, I'm talking yeah. to parents and they're realizing now that taking their kid to a soccer program four or five times a week is was not healthy. And they're, yeah. they're actually enjoying sitting down with their children and engaging with them and sharing time with them. So, you know, yeah. I'm hoping that sport may reconfigure figure more to that grassroots model. And those yeah. that 
aspire. We'll, we'll find that their pathway and hopefully it won't be as intense, you know, and like you said, right at the beginning, the passion that we, we develop for a sport is the thing that really carries us right through. I look yeah. at people like Lionel Messi and some of the top players in the world in other sports, you know, they do it because of the love of the sport. Um, whether they paid the money that, that they're going to take what they can, but the, yeah. the love and the passion has got to be there. So, yeah. And, and I remember like, that's got to be there for sure. I mean, you, if you're only doing it for the money, I don't know how you could do that. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, w- I couldn't imagine any professional athlete does it only for the money. They just must love the game to pursue at that level, yeah. you know, but, but um, I think there's, there's room for everybody to have a little bit more piece of the pie. I think that, you know, the, to, I do. Know, I know there's lots of professionals that have academies and do give back. I'm not saying they don't, and I'm sure they're they're very well regarded and and have huge potential to turn people's lives around. I just think that there's still so much money, like it's yeah. some ridiculous amount of money. Yeah. Again, like like you say, it's it's a case of breaking up that pie and let's make it more equitable and support yeah, exactly. the, the development of the game. Yeah, because I think every. And that's the thing. I mean, I know there for a fact there was kids that came into the program that I coached who questioned whether they would, what they were there for, but they were there because their dad came, you know, that kind of outside influence. But within a few months of the program starting and them getting the love for the program and they're meeting their new friends and like that was the best part of the most rewarding part was to see the connections those kids make. And I know most of those kids are still good friends today. Most of those athletes that came up through the system will be lifelong friends, you know, like just like my partners in crime when I was growing up playing sport, you know, I still got a bunch of people that I connect with and still stay in touch with that are all through sport, you know. And that's one of the key messages I, I often try and give to parents is to get them to recognize what they got from sport, whatever level they got. It was the, the links, the social bondings that they carry yeah. now. And when they're watching their child compete, to realize that it's not the medal that they're competing for. It's that whole lifelong passion and friendships that all, they will yeah. carry more than any medal that they achieve. So, yeah. Well, thank you for your time, Steve. This has been fantastic. Hopefully we can get some messaging out there for, again, inclusive sport. And, you know, the one thing that you really hit home for me and resonated is that engagement of parents. Sport needs to embrace the parents and bring yeah. them in the fold instead of, for years and years, we've just excluded them as the pain in the backside as such that causes problems. No, let's get them in to solve the problems and support the athletes to continue yeah. on their pathway. And it's fun now as a parent to sit back and it's, I don't yeah. like to let the, 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 my kids' programs, the parent, the coaches they've got don't know me as a coach. Yeah. They just know me as a parent. So I love to sit in the corner and watch effective coaches work with my kids. It's nothing more rewarding for me to go to a good training session and see my kids work with great coaches under somebody else, you know, like to trust that, that person, whether it's basketball or my son in biathlon or my daughter in her uh, field hockey programs. Like it's really nice to see the, the coaches in the system that are doing such great work. And when they do actually realize later on, we make a connection that I've done so much in coaching, then I, that connection is an, another level to that relationship between myself and that, that coach. But at first I just, I want to stay back and stay out of the way. I'm not a, I'm not a typical dad that's in the yeah. way. And I think some people might think I'm not being engaged enough, but it's me just watching, you know, yeah. and being the parent. parents don't know that I'm a coach. They don't know that I've worked in sport for 25, yeah. 30 years now. And so it's nice to just be able to sit back and be a participant and be a spectator and not have to be, you know, 
a volunteer coach or parent, you know? Like you say, there are so many new and effective coaches being developed in the system yeah. compared to previously. So, you know, hopefully yeah. when we do come out, this grassroots program, this regeneration will be there to support the needs of the athletes rather than the sport as, as, as a competitive entity. So Yeah, exactly. Thank you for listening. Again, if anyone's got any questions in para sport, inclusion in sport, and dealing with parents, please drop me a line and hopefully we can support you in your further development. Keep going and let's stay safe during this pandemic and hopefully see you on the other side.